Welcome to Making Sense of Movies. I'm Claire. I'm Elena. And we are here to talk to you after about two months. It's been a while, guys. Been a but bit. Here we are. And today we're going to be talking about movies about obsession. But there, there are just so many movies about obsession. We're specifically focusing on when someone is obsessed with perfecting some craft or an idea. And it's just constantly preoccupying and intruding on this person's mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for this specific episode, we decided to kind of rank the movies in personal preference. So from the movies that we, we did like all these movies, telling you that right now, but from what the movies we decided were not, not, not as good, not our favorite to like our absolute favorite. And we can discuss kind of why we decided to put it in these order mm-hmm. as we discuss each movie. The first movie we're discussing is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. This is directed by David Gleb and... It's a documentary starring Jiro Ono, who at the time of this documentary, when it came out, he was an 85-year-old sushi chef who got three Michelin stars. And this guy just made a documentary about basically his restaurant his um, and both of his sons. So he has two sons. He has an older son called Yoshikazu, who runs his Jiro's restaurant with him and is one of the chefs there. And then there is a second restaurant run by the younger son, Kashi. So that's what this movie is about. And it really just, it kind of explores Jiro as a person, and then, but also who makes up his team and what he expects from them. What did you think about this movie, Claire? I definitely learned a lot about the best of the best sushi making. And what was really interesting to me is that his restaurant, it only consists of really a, uh, a countertop and then 10 seats, which like for a restaurant, like, that's a really, really low amount. Um, and they get into that later, just uh, kind of how exclusive it is, where it's like, it takes months for people to make reservations there. Yeah. And this is a three Michelin star restaurant, or at least it was until 2019 when um, it actually had its stars removed because you, you could no longer book publicly. You had to go through a hotel instead to book which is like they actually don't get into that but at least during the documentary it's three-star Michelin restaurant so really interesting like basically I didn't know this restaurant even existed until this documentary and it's really kind of in like a random center like you don't know where the restaurant is it's like you it's kind of reminded me of like an indoor mall like there's no windows at his like Jiro's original restaurant Mm -hmm. and you kind of just go into this kind of office-like looking hallway and then there's this restaurant just like in the mm-hmm. middle of it and there's like someone outside doing the, the sushi rice and the nori like heating it up which is really cool I learned a lot about sushi making mm-hmm. one thing I really liked about this movie specifically was that it not only went over Jiro as like a sushi and kind of like his journey to sushi making it also discussed what his chefs have to go through like the commitment you have to train with Jiro because it for him it takes 10 years mm-hmm. to be a, what he considers like a perfect sushi chef so like you're really spending a chunk of your life at this restaurant and putting your kind of life and skills with Jiro and being like I trust you and this is what is meant to happen so I thought that was really cool and then just the dedication of the chefs of just to achieve the perfection of the sushi, just having to work on it over and over and over again. There's yeah. so much repetition. And then 
Jaira would get up at five in the morning and come home at like 10 o'clock at night. And just uh, not only did they focus on actually being in the restaurant, but the quality of ingredients as well with, and they focus on tuna a lot because tuna is one of the most overfished fish in the sea, but they show uh, the main tuna vendor they have checking the texture of the tuna um, and like shining a flashlight on it. So just everything that goes into the sushi just has to be perfection. Yeah. And it also goes through like the different characters that, you know, Omumi shops who are like his octopus guy and his mm-hmm. tuna guy. And I thought that was really nice. Like it's the idea that like, you know, even though he is the chef and he technically received the three Michelin stars and his restaurant received it, he really, you know, credits it to the people that he trusts his ingredients with and the people that he trusts to make his food when he's you know, not not necessarily not there, but needs to go do something else, which was I, I thought I thought was really great. Mm-hmm. You know, they like the guy he um, the director interviews them and is kind of like, why, like what what makes you like, you know, come to work every day? Like, why do you keep doing this? And they're just like, I just love what I do. And that was, I thought, really nice about this is that even though Jiro is a perfectionist and he's called a perfectionist in this movie and like one of the scenes I think that really brings it home is the fact that he double checks the seating chart. Mm-hmm. Like every time someone is coming into the restaurant, he like double checks the seating chart. He moves each and every, like if someone sets the table, he resets it to make sure it's exactly right, which I find very, very intense. But I was like, like he really cares about it and he... I think when they're filming this is 85 years old. Mm-hmm. So he is, keeps doing this and he's like, there's, why else? Like, you know, I don't want to retire. Everyone's like, when are you going to retire? When are you going to let his older son kind of take over the restaurant? And mm-hmm. it's basically, he's like, I'll do this until I die or until I could no longer physically do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you brought up earlier um, the octopus and they mentioned that he massages the octopus yeah. for 40 to 50 minutes, which mm-hmm. just to think about that amount of time to be doing like massaging octopus just for someone to like eat later that's just like crazy to think about and then the other part that I thought was interesting was um how the sushi was displayed where you he'll give you one piece of sushi uh and then you would have to kind of eat it right away because that's since it's all about the timing and that's going to taste best right as it's served which is just so different from any other restaurant that I've been to. And I was reading more about it online. I actually, I went on their website. So the tasting menu, it consists of 20 pieces of sushi, which um, just like they show in the documentary, he would hand you the sushi and then you'd eat it right away. So it cost 55,000 yen, which in US dollars right now is $404. Oh my God. So inflation, you, but so if yeah, so if you break <laughs> that down, that would be twenty dollars per piece of sushi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really insane, and like the amount of of detail that goes into us, and he like really believes in like the simplicity is the best. Like that's why he's you know massaging the octopus, so he's getting it as tender as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the last sushi for his you know protege chefs to learn is the egg sushi. Mm-hmm. And they talk to some of the chefs who are learning right now. I think they have one guy who I think had been there for about eight years or so. I don't know his name. Um, and he talks about doing it. And he's just like, I, I did it. He did it so many times. He's like, and finally once, like, he would try it and he would be like, this is it. And he tries everything. So yeah. that's the idea is like, even though someone else is making food, he'll come and try it and be like, no, it needs a bit of this. And he just like knows right away. 
what it means, which is insane. Um, he compares like his tasting menu to music. Mm-hmm. He, like, he's not seeing it as this is a meal. Like it has to have a crescendo. It has to have a rhythm to it, which is really, really cool. Not, and not necessarily a way that I think about food and menus. So it's very different. Yeah, because I feel like when we go out to eat, it's more about who are you with? Um, and mm-hmm. like that, it's not really about where does this food come from, which really we should be thinking about. But it's also yeah. like the, the restaurants who are doing that, they're all very expensive restaurants. So, you know, I'm a broke girl. I'm not going yeah, to those restaurants. There's obviously like a, a money aspect um, that plays into specifically his restaurant. Obviously there are other restaurants who, you know, you can go to and have amazing food that don't cost as much. But for this specifically, and sushi in general is a more expensive and luxurious food. Mm-hmm. And this is actually where uh, the Japanese prime minister had taken uh, Barack Obama to eat. And oh. Obama said that it's the best sushi he's ever tasted in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was it was really good. And that's what one of, I think, one of the food they say, he interviews a food critic a lot. And he's like, that's one of the the kind of reasons he like likes it so much is that every time he's there, it's like the same. Like there's no difference in quality. And um, which they do talk about how things have changed out because of like natural resources, because of overfishing. And he talks about how like they used to have certain fish or certain clams or things like that that are no longer available to them. You know, Jiro has been going to the fish market for, you know, so many years that he he stopped going when he was 70 because he had a heart attack. Um, the man doesn't quit. Um, but yeah, so he he talked about a bit about what it what it meant kind of this evolving way that we see food and he kind of and they do talk about a little bit and I kind of wish to talk about a bit more about there's this idea where we don't need to overfish like there's a way to preserve the natural resources while also respecting the businesses like he views the idea of the natural resources and this overfishing as it's disrupting business is that you're making it you know unavailable to things that were once available to me for my business which is not a way that I feel like a lot of people at least that I talk to see it right I mean that's like um as an environmental major the one thing that they drilled into our head was the tragedy of the commons which just the idea of everyone's overfishing because they think if I stop overfishing there's going to be someone else out there who's going to be doing that so why shouldn't I do the same which is the whole reason we're having the issue but they like they do talk about that and the reason the way we can stop it is just acknowledging like if we all fish less and they mentioned that they're even killing the younger fish instead of letting them grow to the size that they're supposed to be so yeah. i mean they the the documentary it talks about a lot of different things from the quality of the sushi to his personal life to uh the yeah. environmental damage it's causing well, he talks about how we're coming to his personal life how i think he got kicked out of his home when he was like nine years old and he just had to get a job mm-hmm. and you know he basically um yeah he just had to to get a job and I guess he kind of he really enjoyed sushi vendors and you know, his restaurant started out as a, a sushi vendor at first and he just kept going and kept learning and that's something that he always says is that even though he is a perfectionist and he's he's incredibly hard on himself like you hear the way he talks about mm. like sushi and his food he's never satisfied because for him there's always something to learn like if there's never like you gain 
like you have this milestone, that's it. Like he has his three Michelin stars at this point in the documentary. And it's not like, oh, that's it. I don't have to, you know, there's nothing else for me to do for him. There's always learning, which is really great. I do kind of wish they spent a bit more about why he decided to get into sushi specifically, because I feel like they don't touch upon that. Like he's incredibly passionate. He's incredibly, you know, driven. You know, he's been doing this for so long, but we don't know, you know, how he got specifically into this journey, how that was for him. We don't hear a lot about what that journey was like for him. You hear a little bit about when he was, you know, he wasn't really available when his children were growing up. They talk about his wife for a bit, um, mm-hmm. but it's very aware that she's no, either she is alive or she's not alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't talk about his like, you know, personal life, which I thought was something that they would get into. So overall, I would definitely recommend this documentary. And besides this documentary, all the other movies that we're talking about are very sad. So yeah, this is, I think, an example of someone who uses their strive and their obsession with perfection to benefit. Like he's always learning and growing and he's not. And it does discuss like, you know, the per- what happens to his personal life. This is his whole life. He doesn't have anything really outside of it he has his sons but his sons are also sushi chefs so you know it's really taken um over but one thing I really did like is I almost like cried at this because I like, do talk to the both sons a lot um that they talk about how his oldest son was the one who made the sushi for the Michelin star I love that who came and like it just really proves his idea that like I'm just one person but like it's everyone else behind me that's really creating this good sushi and that they really end the movie on the older son and his desire to take over I really like that because even though it is about Jiro he really puts the credit to everyone else he's very humble about you know what he does Mm -hmm. because it's not all about him it's just about like the art of the actual sushi and exactly Mm -hmm. exactly I definitely recommend this it's if you know nothing about sushi it was really interesting I just think personally they could have gone the director could have gone a little bit further into I think a lot of the people we were talking to especially the sons you don't get to know too much um, about the suns but yeah I highly recommend though very very cool and it's very like calm and methodic the way everything was shot they would like show the sushi in one piece to you each time and as they were making it it was very cool it'll make you hungry for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah um the next movie we talk we're going to talk about is that um top is titled oh I can't know why I can't speak right now um the skin I live in um directed by Pedro Almed Dovar. This is the first and so far only movie I've seen from Pedro Amador, who I know is a very affluent Spanish director. This movie is a doozy. This <laughs> is one of those movies where it's a very well done movie. I do not know if I will watch it again. I agree. So part of I think what makes this movie kind of insane, it's not only like what's happening, it's the fact that it's not in a linear style it's not told in a linear style so you start at one day de- one end and then you're getting flashbacks to things that have happened in the past but not the same flashbacks so you're getting you're at different points at one point in the movie you're seeing two different the same event from two different point of views mm-hmm. so it gets or even three different no three different point of views the same event yeah I believe in three it. different point of views what are you talking about so a lot happens I don't know if I necessarily enjoyed this movie. I think it was beautifully done. I think he's a great director. There were really beautiful shots and the compositions in this movie were really great. 
I just thought the overall subject matter, which is kind of like, I don't know, not great. We'll, we'll talk about it the more we get into it, but. Um, so I guess we can start from the beginning where yeah. are, are introduced to Raw, oh, and spoilers because. Duh. Yeah, <laughs> but especially for this movie. So yeah. we meet Robert and he is a successful and wealthy plastic surgeon mm-hmm. and his main focus on human skin and he wants to create skin that is resistant to insect bites and burns. And then in addition to meeting Robert in his very large house, we meet Vera and it's this very strange relationship where Vera is being held hostage, but it's very unclear what's going on. There are cameras in Vera's room and Robert is always watching her. So we are open with a lot more questions than we have answers. And the whole movie <laughs> is just unraveling what exactly is going on here. Yeah. And how we got to that point. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't know how long Vera has been there. You know, he has... um like a maid, you may say Marilla, who is also his maid, and you later learn his mother. Mm -hmm. Who is keeping a secret that Robert actually has a brother as well, who shows up to the house in a tiger costume. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, so we also have like a lot of questions there. And the brother isn't a great guy at all. He had like just come from a robbery and he sees Vera and thinks that it is Robert's ex-wife, but he doesn't know that. And just thinks it's the woman who he got into a car accident with, who he had been in love with. But Um, who he left to die while she was being almost burned alive. But Um, Robert also doesn't know this, which is why this whole situation is very tricky. Yeah, it's very tricky. Um, And essentially... He comes in, his name is um, uh, Zeka. Mm-hmm. And he's dressed in his tiger costume. We know it's car- carnival, that's what's happening. And he's basically, I'm here to visit you, mother. And then he sees Zara, is like, that's Robert's ex wife. I'm going to go be with her. And he's like, he doesn't really understand what's going on. He's like, why are the cameras there? Like, really confused. Um, ties up his mother, goes and rapes Vera. And then Robert comes and kills him. And like, when I say this is the least confusing thing that happens in this movie, generally, this is probably one of the more straightforward things that happen. Yeah. Like, you're like, you know what's happening and it happens and you're just like, okay. And then he goes to bury the body and we're like, okay. But this moment kind of has a shift for the relationship between Vera and Robert because you kind of see Vera, um, you kind of see Robert, I think, kind of trust them more and also like show a bit more emotion in the beginning. Robert's kind of like, not emotionless, but he's very cold. Um, In the beginning of the movie, Vera tries to kill themselves by slitting um, their wrist and Robert just fixes it. And was like, if you really wanted to die, you wouldn't have done that. Like that was just for attention. And this really acts as, as a shift and Vera kind of starts to get a bit more control. And when this shift happens is that they sleep together. And once they come together is we start to get the backstory for how Vera has come to be in Robert's kind of possession. 
yeah, if you want to explain a bit of that, Claire. <laughs> okay, so we'll flash back now to six years earlier where Robert is at a wedding with his daughter. And we also learn, I think uh, the, his mother had told us this earlier, was that Robert, his wife, okay, is from the car accident. So what happens is when she um, wakes up, she sees herself in the mirror and is very, uh, um, her face is all burnt and she jumps out the window and mm-hmm. unfortunately kills herself uh, in front of her daughter, Norma, who was outside playing. And very this sad. traumatizes Norma and she now has to, um, she's taking medication, trying to get better um, because she has psychosis, but she is getting better. And Robert, now six years earlier, Robert takes her to a wedding and there's a lot of people there and Norma doesn't really have a lot of interaction all the time, but she seems at first to be enjoying herself um, until Norma is raped and Robert finds her uh, next to this tree and she's obviously very distressed and Mm -hmm. freaking out. Um, and Robert is now the one who's associated with, um, this situation in the sense that when Norma sees Robert, um, she's freaks out because she just associates him with when she was raped. Well, she, she thinks he raped her. Mm -hmm. So when Robert finds Norma kind of like clothed against this tree, she's, Mm -hmm. she's knocked out. And when he tries to shake her, the only thing she can remember is what had happened previously. So she sees her father's face, doesn't really recognize him as a father, and thinks he's the one that raped her. So she's incredibly traumatized after this. And we see this specific night from three different point of views. So we first see it from Robert's, then we see it from Norma. So, you know, she, you can tell that she doesn't really understand social cues. She meets this guy, Vicente, and you know, all these people decide to go out to the gardens and have sex with each other, essentially. And this is, if you remember Robert's flashback, he walks in on a, basically a bunch of teenagers having sex in the woods. Yeah. And it's incredibly weird. Um, and essentially, you come to realize that, you know, the guy she was with had been taking drugs because he asks her if she's taken pills and she lists off all of her medication. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm really high. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. okay, and she yeah. doesn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they start to kiss and she doesn't really understand what he's trying to do. And eventually she says no. And then he, no- he knocks her out and runs away. And then you see this point of view from Vicente's um, point of view where he works at his mother's clothing store. He talks about how he wants to leave. And he's not really satisfied with his life. And then, you know, yeah, he's going to go to this party, but, like, he's not really going to do anything. He's just there to, like, hang out. Obviously, he rapes Norma. Um, but, yes, that's the three point of views we see just from this one night. And this one night basically kicks off all of the events that happened from the beginning of the movie. Yes. So, after that, Robert hunts down Vicente, who was driving away on his motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And drives him off the road, kidnaps him, and throws him in this cave-like thing. Yeah. It's a little unclear exactly where where they are. um, Because no no one else has access to it. Like, it's just Robert. Yeah. 
and then Vicente's chained up there. So like, and Vicente has at this point no idea who has kidnapped him or doesn't um, understand. what's going on. And eventually, Robert shows up again and mm-hmm. is now well giving giving water and food and shaving uh, until it is ultimately revealed their relationship to each other at this point because um vincent is kind of trying to get close to him since that's the only human connection he has anymore um and it's revealed that uh robert kidnapped him because he raped norma and then he says i don't think i actually raped her and i was like like do you see norma like she literally can't talk to her father at all she's hospitalized and then she like can't handle it and she also throws herself out a window and kills herself so like Robert really has no one which is why he kind of comes obsessed with doing this kind of revenge mm-hmm. and while Robert keeps Vicente in this cave we kind of realize or at least by that point once I realized like Robert's like you're gonna be here for a while that I was like wait like is Vicente Vera like is that's what's happening and guess what folks yes robert performs surgery on vicente and completely changes um their sex and genitals and entire body and face so the actor who plays vicente and the actor who plays vera are two completely different actors so vicente is played by a male actor vera is played by a female actor so when i say completely changes they're completely two different people playing them so they do look very different um and it just makes it weirder where you're like you don't understand why robert decides to do this yeah and that kind of leads into the part where it's like his obsession because he this is a way to keep his wife and daughter alive in a weird Mm -hmm. way a very weird way and then it also shows how his power as in his like medical very unethical medical profession of what he's able to do and his obsession with the skin that he's trying to create so vera represents definitely a few things in that sense of obsession so then we jump back from the past into the present again and at this point i'm sure it was the same for you where everything here you're just like this is so weird and this is so 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 messed up and we're at the point now where Vera is showing that they're, they're, it seems they're okay with the situation, okay, in quotations, with the situation yeah. um, as a way to trick Robert. And Vera ends up shooting Robert and escaping back to uh, the shop uh, where the mother is. And at the very end of the movie, we're left with Vera going to meet the mother again and that's where it ends which out of everything we've seen it's kind of just a moment where you want to see that reunion so badly and Mm -hmm. you're like really praying that it goes well and then after that the movie ends and you're like holy shit like what did I just watch a lot happens and there is a point and I think after we kind of know everything that happens once all the flashbacks are done when you mentioned you're back to the present. You kind of think like, is this like a Stockholm syndrome situation? Yeah. Because there is a point in the movie where, you know, Vicente's mother never stopped believing mm-hmm. that they were 
that they were still alive, you know, if they're close to a point where their mother is like, oh, um, you know, Vicente would never say that they were leaving without telling me, you know, they yeah. said they were going to go hang out with friends and they just didn't show up. And everyone thought that, that, you know, Vicente ran away. And so, you know, Vicente's picture shows up and one of the guys who had done the surgery on Vicente, you know, shows up to Robert and is like, we did the surgery on this kid. And the mother still thinks that, you know, they're missing. And, you know, and they say this not very nicely. They keep using the C word. It's very crass, um, mm -hmm. you know, but that's essentially what happens. And then Vera comes in and is like, no, like, yes, I asked for this surgery. You know, I am with Robert. Like, this was me. Like, I chose to do this. So, you know, you're kind of also like, what's going on in Vera's head? You know, it's been six years since, you know, Vera's just been here. So it kind of becomes this mind game a bit. And then eventually you kind of are like, no, like Vera wants out. This makes sense. Like specifically buys a specific dress. So when they go into the shop, they can tell one of the dress, the you know shop associates like, oh, this was the last conversation we had together before I disappeared. Like, do you remember? So I thought mm -hmm. that was really smart. And I recognized the dress too. So I was like, back in my head, I was like, maybe they're trying to do something, you no know, coming, like thinking about back home. Uh -huh. But yeah, it ends up being that Robert's downfall ends up being like this show of emotion this decision to not become you know uh, Robert smokes opium that's part of the movie um and it kind of decides to become like his downfall which he should no one's great in this movie like no one's a good person but you know he's like he decides to show emotion for Vera even though it's incredibly weird that he sleeps with the person that had essentially raped his daughter and kind of caused his daughter to go into a psychotic break and kill herself. Um, that's a little, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, definitely not a movie for everyone. Yeah, and I think yeah. the reason like I didn't particularly like this movie is because, and this is based off a book. I don't remember what the book's name is. So it's not, you know, thought out of, of nowhere. And I think it's very influenced by, um, there's a movie I think from, was it 1960s or? later or earlier than that not called the skin I live in it's like this I can't recall right now um but where they're using you know this gender reaffirmation surgery as a form of violence when it's normally used as like and this in the name it's reaffirmation you're affirming something that you know someone mm -hmm. wants so for me like that part of it I felt kind of uncomfortable with especially with like what's going on with trans rights and things like that I was kind of like to use specifically this and specifically like the two different actors, the kind of what they're trying to say with this and what, you know, at the end of the movie, you know, Vera doesn't introduce themselves as Vera. They're like, I'm Vicente. So it's kind of like emotionally, how do you even deal with that? Yeah. Um, was well, just incredibly like a little bit unsettling. But so, uh, yeah, it's a no very one's a good person. Unsettling. It's just mm -hmm. so it's very odd. Yeah. As far as how the movie is made though. It's Beautiful. very well done. Yeah, in this, especially because we've been talking about, it is a very hard story with all the different mm -hmm. character point of views and the nonlinear yeah. storytelling to keep in place, but they do keep you wanting to unravel everything the whole entire time to the point where you're like, I've seen enough. I'm, I've seen enough of this. But yeah. uh, one of the things I really loved is um, just 
the set design of the house because all of the furniture in the house just seems way too big for the humans living there and it kind of just reflects his own godlike thinking of himself that he is just so much better than everyone else and he has the power to do things to people when he is mm-hmm. completely out of line yeah uh, but I like how the home reflects like his personality and then the, he's got a lot of really good artwork in the home mm-hmm. too I was gonna mention that there he's- are definitely a few movies here where it's like really great artwork on the wall I know so. this one specifically it's a lot of you know, naked bodies and movements. Uh, the first thing you see in this movie is, obviously you don't know yet, but is Vera in this skin, like tight kind of spandexy outfit. That's the t- their skin tone. And, you know, there's this incredible kind of motif about the body and what that means and what it means to change it. Um, so there's a lot of, of kind of pictures. And one of the things that I think I I kind of liked in the beginning is when you see the big like big TV screen that Robert has in one of the rooms that's you know showing footage of Vera when I first saw it I didn't think it was a TV screen I thought it was a a painting or a photograph and it's not until Vera turns around that I was like oh no that's even creepier because it literally takes up I think almost the entire wall and that particular like the him always watching the tv screen with her was such a great way in the beginning to show the distance he was trying to keep emotionally Mm -hmm. of like wanting to be involved but wanting to be in a separate room just like watching on the tv screen which just totally is like you were saying before he gets emotionally involved and that is his downfall yeah, and I think also one of the things I did like was the kind of like weird bursts of color. One of the times when Vera has been, you know, all the, all the surgery has happened, you know, they're Vera now. Um, and literally Robert says, you're Vera, because mm-hmm. <laughs> announces their name. Um, Vera kind of like kicks him and runs away, and which is how we, we learn, you know, Robert locks the doors and things that doesn't let Vera out of the room. And there's this really cool shot because Vera's in this skin type black outfit, it was not initially in the, the skin tone one. And face is in this weird mask that you see in the trailer. And there's a shot where the camera's up and by the stairs, and Vera is looking up towards Robert on this like really cool colored, um, uh, carpet and it was just like that shot specifically was like very very cool but yeah I think some of the other things I didn't particularly like I think the level of violence was not warranted there's at least there's two rape scenes in this movie the one between Vera and uh, Robert's half-brother is incredibly uncomfortable Mm because you see everything like him just lying on top of Vera and like really going at it and then you see the blood and everything um, and then also there's also the racing with Norma and Vicente, which I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think that was warranted. I think you could have seen what was happening and get, gotten the idea without necessarily. Yeah. Most of the time it. with rape in film, you could always get the same. It, it could always be implied and you could always not have it, but it's always used as just like a shock factor. Yeah. And especially with this, like that whole sequence with Zezko. Um, the half-brother was incredibly weird like yeah. as soon as if he shows up you're like something fucking weird is happening like mm-hmm. I'm like why is he in a Kyger costume he's incredibly cruel to his mom 
and like the mom kind of describes to Vera afterwards like about you know his trouble growing up but I was like I don't know like that doesn't excuse what he did of course yeah um yeah and then yeah that was kind of it I think I think overall like it's a good movie I don't think it's Pedro Almodoro Pedro Almodovar's best Although Antonio um, Banderas is very good in this movie. And well, he recently, he did Parallel Mothers from last year. Yes, that which was I the didn't, most recent yeah, movie. I haven't seen that one, but I, I, I do want to see that eventually yeah. because um, Penelope Cruz, like she was nominated for an Oscar yeah. and is apparently great in it. So they're, I definitely- They're big collaborators together. Yeah. Cruz and um, Pedro. I, I just think, I think like for this being my first of his movies, I was like- it is being like down. being thrown in the deep end. Yeah, kind of. I was like, oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Even though I, I'm, I read a little bit about his movies after this, they're all kind of, you know, very um, pushing the boundaries of like what we think. Mm-hmm. This one I just didn't particularly enjoy as much overall. Yeah, I agree. It's a easy to be like, oh, I appreciate the filmmaking, but as far as what is actually going on, yeah, it's like, matter. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah. That movie is done. I thought we would talk about that for like ever. The plot was insane. Yeah. Okay. So next we are talking about Rope, which is by Alfred Hitchcock, the man. Mm-hmm. And the this man? is, I, yeah, I love this movie. I thought this was <laughs> so too. much fun. Okay. I think what made it fun was freaking Philip and Brandon. The yeah. power team. Um, one, I have to ask you, because I believe this wholeheartedly. They're like a couple. They're in love. Yeah, they, it's not stated, but like they live together. They only have one bedroom. Vacation. They have one bedroom. They're going on vacation mm-hmm. together. But like no one, I guess like it was made in 1948. It's not talked about. But um, I because I think uh, the reason I, yeah I like it so much is because Philip is like a nervous wreck the entire movie, and then Brandon is like cool, being like, "Don't try to ruin this for me." All right. So to set it up, and we could probably. Yeah explain the plot instead of in like five minutes like we did the last one this could probably be summed up in like two to three minutes yeah let's go. we meet brandon and we meet philip uh they're they both go to harvard they live together and <laughs> they just want to kill someone for fun just because they can yeah so they kill david and then invite david's family over for dinner with david's body still in the apartment just to prove that they can do it. They're really trying to just complete the perfect murder here. Um, So that's the plot. (laughs) And in eight hours, they're going, I think, to Connecticut or something, and they're going to take the body with them and bury it, and it would have been the perfect murder. But of course, something goes wrong, and hence the name of this movie. It is the rope that they use to strangle David Kentley, who is the one who is murdered. And that first, at first, it kind of becomes like okay they're having this dinner party and there's this chest and the one thing I didn't specifically notice about this movie is that it's all done in essentially well not essentially you can really see where the cuts are in this movie but um, it's supposed to be done in one take which is not something I think as I was watching it that I was like oh my god it's done in one take but there is I think something about that especially with this movie where it takes place in essentially mainly one room there's a smaller room that it also takes in and the camera basically weaves in and out between them and kind of goes zooming in and out but the chest is always in center you never forget the chest because you never forget that David is in the chest Mm -hmm. and who they invite to this party 
who Brandon decides to invite Philip is very much under Brandon's influence, kind of does whatever, even though they agreed to do this together, Philip literally as soon as it happens, like and Brandon invites David's parents, David's new lover, um, their friend Kenneth, who um, used to date David's lover, Janet. Mm -hmm. And they also invite who Brandon's obsessed with is Jor? Rupert, Rupert, Rupert yeah. who is an old teacher of both of theirs. And Philip really regrets. He's like, why'd you invite Rupert? Rupert would be the only one who would kind of question everything. I'm like, why they're doing this? Because it's, it's a weird thing to like these a, a bunch of these people together. Um, oh, and then there's like another woman there who I think is like David's aunt or something. Oh, the fortune teller? Yeah, the fortune teller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and basically it's all these people in a room together and you as an audience know David's dead and everyone's wondering where is David? <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's even Brandon who's the one who like brings it up like, oh yeah, like where is David? Trying to kind of, he's always just pushing the envelope to yeah. see how far he can make it obvious that they killed David without being the ones to be like, we killed yeah. David. And what I love, especially at the very beginning of the movie, the first five minutes, how quickly we jump into this story. Because with most of the other Hitchcock movies I've seen, which would be like Psycho, The Birds, and Vertigo, it does take a long time to build up to like the actual plot of it, but the murder happens almost immediately. And yeah. I love the uh, the show don't tell characterization of Brandon and Philip in the opening mm -hmm. scene because um, as soon as they suffocate David, throw him in the trunk, Philip cannot take his eyes off the trunk. Yeah. He is very worried about this. And then Brandon is opening up the windows. He's talking about the antique glasses on the table. And it's just kind of ready to like, oh, let's just get the party started. Where yeah. Philip is like, starts to lose it. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that Brandon is the one that did this. Even though they've talked about it, you know, in the movie, one of the quotes I wrote down is Brandon said, I wouldn't do anything unless I did it perfectly. Mm -hmm. which I think when it comes to this movie about obsession with perfection, this is very much the idea. He views murder as an art form. And this is his greatest art project is to complete what he calls the perfect murder. And I think for him, that ends up being his downfall is that he wants it to be so great and so perfect that he's missing and he's forgetting signs that could lead him back to being arrested. And one of, mm -hmm. one of the things he does, which is what everyone questions in everyone comes in is that he decides instead of having dinner in the dining room on the table, they're going to move um, the dinner on top of the chest. So they move all the food on top of the chest. So now not only is, is your eyes on the chest, but everyone's going to be literally eating off, not eating off, but getting food off the chest. Yeah. And their maid like brings it up a lot because she had put everything original it, it was the maid right who's there yeah. working with them yeah mm -hmm. she originally has things on the dinner table where they're supposed to be and she then said. right and Brandon is now moving everything onto the chest which like probably they've never brought out before or they've mm -hmm. never paid any kind of attention to so they make it very obvious that it's out of place. It's very out of place, very out of character for them to yeah. be like paying so much attention to this chest. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that sticks out of the chest is the rope used to murder. Philip sees it. And at first you kind of see it too. So as there, the camera is moving up and down, like for me, I saw it, I was like, oh, the rope is there. Like, what am I going to do? And Brandon's like, just pull it out. 
Like Philip is freaking out. Brandon just pull it out. So Brandon pulls it out and they put it in the kitchen and you don't really think about it until almost the end of the movie. And as soon as that happens, like we begin. Brandon tells Philip being weak is a mistake as the lovely quotes of Brandon goes. Um, and we kind of basically see this party and throughout the party, Philip is getting more and more drunk and more and more kind of uh, upsetting and doesn't really know how to act. And Brandon is like cool, but also incredibly arrogant. Mm -hmm. Because Rupert starts to notice because Philip uh, begins to stutter when he's excited. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rupert points that out to them. Um, and Philip is just taking everything to literally like when the, the fortune teller is reading his fortune and is saying, you're going to be famous because of your hands. He doesn't take that as, oh, it's because of my great piano skills because, oh, I just murdered some guy like yeah. probably half an hour ago. Yeah, no, I have, I have that quote, which is these hands will bring you great fame. Yeah. And Philip looks fucking spooked as he does. The actor that plays Philip is kind of amazing. He's, his eyes, it's the way he just like stares at something is like upset the entire time. He breaks a bat, a, a glass at some point and like doesn't realize that he broke it and that he's bleeding. Um, they, we also know from Brandon that he had thought about inviting Rupert to do this murder because there's this mm -hmm. very weird relationship that is not explained and I kind of think it's because Brandon's kind of in love with Rupert at least yeah. from, mm -hmm. he can kind of clear out he talks about Rupert incredibly like reveres him to no end and he kind of had this really weird discussion where where they're kind of having a moral discussion and Brandon goes to Rupert like don't you think like don't you think murder is proof you know like don't you think murder is like a good thing? Like, and everyone's like appalled. And Rupert's like, yeah, like it solves poverty and unemployment and standing in line. And Brandon kind of like agrees with this. And you can see like that very much influenced what Brandon perceives as like murder as art instead of murder as like taking someone's life, mm -hmm. um, which I found really interesting. During this discussion too, we get the chicken story. Yeah, the chicken story where um, Rupert's bringing, I'm sorry, not Rupert, um, Brandon's bringing up a few times to Philip about how Philip used to live on a farm, right, and used to kill chickens there, mm -hmm. and even though this is, like, fact, Philip really freaks out about it, just implying that he could kill anything, yeah. and he thinks this is, like, a big giveaway, but really, if Philip didn't freak out about it as much, no one would probably be like, oh, you're the one who killed David, um, yeah. you're the reason he's missing, um, mm -hmm. And the main reason for this get together was supposed to be for Brandon and Phil to give these books to David's father. And, you know, as the time goes on, everyone's like, where's David? Like, it's really unlike David to be late to something. And Janet um, is also kind of like, you know, David would usually call, like, what's like, what, like, what if something happened? And uh, David's mother can't make it. That's why the fortune teller comes. And, you know, she keeps calling being like, David hasn't called, like, like what's going on? And we kind of get this great scene at the end of the movie where they're kind of rushing everyone out. And Brandon goes, oh, like, let me get something for, you can, you can take these books with you. This is why you're here. And he ties the rope he used to murder David for the books. Mm -hmm. And Philip's like, why did you do that? And Brandon's like, it's perfect. Like, it's the perfect accessory. And I'm like, literally, I, I, I wrote, the rope used to kill his son is used for the books. I can't. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And then really the big giveaway here though is even though Brandon thinks he has everything tied up in a pretty little knot, the book, I'm sorry, not the book, the hat that David's initials are on, they yeah. left it in the closet. So when Rupert goes to get his stuff to go, he sees the hat with the initials on it. So that's at the point where he's like, something's fucked up here. Yeah. And I think also there's a lot of points in the movie where, you know, she's cleaning off, the maid is cleaning off the table mm-hmm. and is trying to put stuff in the trunk. And Phil's like, no, yeah, <laughs> don't. And there's a point where like she's opening the trunk, but she's turned around so she can't see what's inside. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing too, where like, it's very nerve wracking because it's kind of like want them to get away with it. Like Brandon is so charismatic and um, really driven. At some point I was kind of like, can they do this? Like, can they really do this? And obviously they can't, they get caught. But But I think the fun part um, of the movie is because when you're watching as the audience, it's you, Brandon, and Philip who know. So you kind of feel like you're in on it too. You're just watching all these people who just have no idea what's in the trunk that's always right in front of the screen. So that's the part that I think is just so fun about this movie because you can go back and rewatch it. And since you already know the twist that no one else does, it's like, yeah, it's great. Exactly. And one of the things is, so once everyone leaves, Rupert comes back and his, his thing is like, I forgot my cigarette case. And you see him place the case on the trunk. Mm-hmm. And I personally thought that was going to like put more into it. Um, it really doesn't. He just ends up pretending that he found it. Um, but essentially he starts to kind of interrogate them and, and kind of describes David's murder. Like, oh, like if you murdered him, like this is what would happen. And when he's doing that, it's probably one of my favorite scenes is that the camera goes through the entire room but doesn't focus on a person. All the shots are like of the furniture of like mm-hmm. what, what we've seen throughout this entire movie and what we know has been moved and used to, you know, aid in David's murder. And then Philip during this point, like throws his cup, yelling at Brandon, like, you did this, like this was your fault. Like, I can't believe we did this. And then Brandon has a gun. And then essentially Rupert ends up being like, no, it was the rope. Like you, this rope was a weird thing. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of being proud, what Brandon thinks Rupert would be proud of him, Rupert is disgusted. He's like, this is like not what, what we meant. And you kind of realize like Brandon obviously misunderstood what he was talking about, but Rupert's also a fucking idiot. Because yeah. why would you say things like murder should be legal to to help unemployment, which is disgusting, mm-hmm. yeah. and not think someone as impressionable as Brandon is going to think that that is the key. And yeah, and he talks about how murder is legal. He doesn't think anyone's going to, you know, there's going to be no consequence for that. Mm-hmm. So I, I would definitely say this is my favorite of the Hitchcock movies I've seen so far. Like this is, this is a great like, movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I really like this one. I thought it was really great. I kind of love the relationship between Brandon and Philip. They talk, they talk really closely with their drinking <laughs> champagne together. Um, but you can also tell that they both really trust in some ways, like that at some point, obviously not during this movie, but at, in the past, they had a real trust and love for one another. And because of Brandon's insistence um, to do this, it kind of, you know, blows apart. And that also kind of ends up being their downfall is that Brandon doesn't you know, he considers him and Philip as a team, but he doesn't necessarily understand Philip's feelings towards all of this. And that really doesn't help him. 
Um, but the hat, I would say, is the big key and the dumbest thing that they could have switched. They could have just had it on the, the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Could have been and avoided. Ends, yeah, it ends with Rupert basically shoots a gun in the out the window so that someone hears gunshots and they call the cops. And yeah, but I I know I don't want to know if you kind of picked up on the one shot of this film. I wasn't really paying attention to, to that too much. If I went back and rewatched it, which I probably will, um, I would definitely focus on that more. And from what I was reading, there were, um, the film was shot in 10 takes. Um, so some of the takes are 10 minutes long, while others are like just over four minutes long. And actually, if you go on the main Wikipedia page, they list out all 10 of the cuts and where you can find them. Yeah, there were definitely, I think, because the one thing I noticed was that um, I literally wrote in my notes, they, and I didn't, and as I was writing it, I like didn't understand it, but I wrote that they keep having shots, like really zooming into Brandon's back and then zooming out. So there are at least two or three of those. Yeah. Um, and then I think they do at the end of the movie, they kind of focus on him shooting out the window and then they, he zooms out and he mm-hmm. basically just focuses on all three men, just like, accepting it but I think this is a really great example of perspective and framing because it really mm-hmm. does such a good job of going in between and there's a whole other like subplot drama that we haven't even talked about between Kenneth and Brandon and Janet mm-hmm. and that whole thing um, but the last thing I want to mention before we move on is that the actress who plays Janet has her own credit for her dresses Oh, <laughs> as the dresses are, you know, the credits are in the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. and it's, and literally I was reading it, and it goes, it goes Miss Chandler's dresses. Like she specifically had her own costume, you know, deciding what to wear, and she only has one dress in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was kind of amazing, and I really liked it. So shall we move on to our next movie then? Yes, we're talking about uh, Black Swan, uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky, the man in the scarf. The man. <laughs> This is, I would say, the reason we did this podcast is you had recently watched Black Swan and was kind of like, we need to talk about this. Yeah. Um, but this is one of the, I think, epitomes of obsession with perfectionists. A lot of people think of ballet because there is this really big culture of being perfect and pushing yourself to be perfect. And I think it'd be very, you know, terrible of us to not talk about Black Swan if we were mm-hmm. not doing this list. So just to note, I watched this movie the first time when I was 14 years old and I haven't seen the movie fully since it's been about 10 years since I've seen it I was wondering you know this was the first time you watched it was a little bit before this podcast yeah so I first started watching probably I would say in high school and I reached a point where it got a little too much for me so I stopped watching it and then never went back so then recently I did go and start watching it again just from the beginning and this is just one of the most incredible movies I think I've ever seen. Like, mm-hmm. will just really leave you thinking for a really long time. Just the yeah. filmmaking, the dancing, just how intricate all the, the characters are and their motivations. And Natalie Portman, wow. Like, she Great. is incredible in this. Yeah, and I think, I think from watching it now and then when I was watching it when I was 14, I definitely understand a bit more of the sexual influences and some of the subtleties that I don't think I initially saw when I was 14. I did, the first time I watched this movie was literally like with my friend 
we were on like a school trip and I had brought my like family iPad and my brother had illegally downloaded this movie <laughs> and it was both of us watching it and being like so shook of it mm-hmm. but yeah I really like this movie I really do really like dance as an art form um and this was really well done I love specifically the way he decides to shoot the dance scenes very fluid he really kind of it's as it's as if the camera is another dance partner mm-hmm. and really flows with the um dance scene so we I guess start with the plot we open with Nina, um, who is our main character, played by Natalie Portman. She is a ballerina for some dance company at Lincoln Center in New York City. And she is a good dancer. You know, she's very obsessed. It's even noted in the beginning of the movie that she obsesses over each move and is very much like perfecting the move, but she doesn't really have like the personality to be a star dancer. And essentially, one of the main principal dancers no longer going to be there, so they need a new star for their Black Swan. Oh, Swan Lake, sorry. And this specifically, if you don't know about Swan Lake, um, Nina explains that in the movie, but essentially, it's a girl who gets turned into a swan, and she basically plays two characters, the white swan and the black swan. And this movie really goes with the duality of it. Um, Nina can only play the white swan because she's naive and innocent. And she doesn't have the surprise of the black swan. And she tries out for the part, doesn't think she's going to get it. And then she goes to Tomas, who is the director, I guess. And he kisses her and she bites him. And he basically was like super shocked and basically gives her the part. Because mm-hmm. maybe, because uh, what he's talking about is y- you need to have some kind of surprise element. And you- the reason you're a great white swan is because you're so technical and perfect. Mm-hmm where it fits the white swan part, but she just can't play the black swan because you need to let yourself go, which Nina is unwilling to do. So mm-hmm. um, when she goes to talk to Thomas to just try changing his mind, he says that perfection is about surprising yourself so you can surprise the audience. So when she bites him, which is completely unpredictable, he didn't think she would do that. Mm-hmm. He then gives the part to her after seeing maybe she does have what it takes to play this role and he even like mentions it you know when she gets the part and she's auditioned she's you know they're practicing he goes give me more of that fight I know I saw it like Mm -hmm. recently which I thought was cheeky and a little bit funny there is like a weird I don't know there's something about like Tomas as a character where I'm like he's he's very like he's he kind of like has this undertone where like people think he sleeps with his dancers and that's why he gives them parts. And that's very much like kind of what happens. Not mm-hmm. what happens, but you kind of get the idea. But you also from the movie get that he's doing this to further his dances. At least at least Nina specifically. It's still very uncomfortable. He like asks her if she's ever had sex. He touches her like inappropriately. And I'm like, this is very inappropriate. Like you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, it's a lot of, misconduct in the workplace mm-hmm. and we also see that with Beth who's the one who's retiring who Tomas would always say his little princess and Beth is played by Renona Ryder very um, well yeah so that's like it's very great to see her in that role but we like we see with Nina and then with Lily played by Mila Kunis Thomas Tomas whatever it is whatever his name is <laughs> yeah I'm, I might just call him Thomas it's like a back and forth, I feel like. Like, he does see the talent in these women, but is also just really in it for himself. 
yeah and I think like the movie doesn't frame it that way I think is probably what because this is, I think if, if anything this is a man's view on a very mm-hmm. a feminine scenes you know mm-hmm. essentially sport so I think that is where I think for me like the one line it crosses is that it kind of makes it seem like him doing this misconduct is like for the better or maybe views the black swan as a more sexual being when it doesn't necessarily need to be like that's not you can access that sort of surprise without having to to um be sexual and that's the one thing Tomas always says like you have to seduce me as the black swan like you're seducing the audience and that one scene where he touches her and they're making out and he goes I seduced you like you need to seduce me mm-hmm. and that's a whole other thing so I think the only, let's not say the only downside of this whole movie is that kind of undertone at least yeah, for me and, personally and one of the issues I had is at one point he told Nina to go home and masturbate. Oh, yeah. And I kind of felt like it. there are a few things that leads Nina to being the Black Swan. So it wasn't just her masturbating, but it kind of felt like, <laughs> are we using masturbation as a way to show like, oh, is this Deviance? kind of introduction into like womanhood and like pleasuring yourself? is this seen as a bad thing where you're like, you're turning into the black swan because of this, which is like definitely not a good thing for women to women to believe because it's just like, it's so much more than that in a sense that it's so frowned upon by society when it just shouldn't be. Yeah. He's Um, Tomas is kind of crusty. Um, when he introduces Nina as like the the, uh, principal dancer mm -hmm. for Swan Lake, he invites her to his apartment afterwards for a drink and like immediately starts questioning her if she has boyfriends, if she's had sex, does she enjoy sex? And this is where he tells her to masturbate for the first time. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you're a trusty old man. Yeah. But he doesn't try anything, which is why like, like you're kind of like confused for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you do like at the end, you realize he does have like this affinity for Nina. So it, it makes you very, he's playing mind games here. So yeah. Say mind games. So another big part of the movie is we also learn about the relationship between Nina and her mother. And the mother is very, very aggressive in the way that she's parenting Nina, where uh, she has photos of Nina all over her bedroom, all these different drawings to the point where it's like, at the very beginning, you don't really realize what this relationship is. And it makes it very obvious that the mother is living through Nina and that yeah. Um, the mother couldn't be a ballerina because she had to have Nina. So now Nina is essentially the version of like, this is, this isn't your dream or this isn't my dream. This is your dream kind of in that little bit, even though it is like Nina's dream at this point. Mm-hmm. I think also she wants to keep Nina as a child. And I think Nina herself is very much kind of emotionally stunted. She talks in a very soft, voice she's very meek she doesn't really say what she wants a lot of the time she's very you know specific to not upset her mother um her room is is you know her bed sheets are butterflies and pink and her wallpaper is pink with butterflies and she has a ton of stuffed animals and bunnies and ballet you know childish ballet stuff about her entire room and her mom helps her dress in the morning that's one of the first things we see so I think we also get this sense that she's still very much a child, even though she is 28 years old in this movie, mm-hmm. which is 
you know, it still lives with her mother, still allows her mother to kind of dictate what she eats and what she wears. Um, and throughout the movie and throughout, I think, this part, she starts to break away from that. Um, you start to see it a little bit in what she's wearing. She starts to wear not as much pinks and whites, then she starts to wear whites and grays, and then she wears completely gray and then she starts to wear gray and black until eventually she is the black swan. Mm -hmm. um, but that was just like a subtle thing you see. Especially the scene right before they actually have the dance in front of the audience where Nina goes out with Lily, which mm -hmm. is the part where Nina kind of is losing control here of who she had been before, mm -hmm. where she is taking drugs, which uh, Lily um, did drug her drink. And then Nina sees this and still decides to yeah. have that drink. And she is making out with boys who she doesn't know. Then Having um, sex with them in bathrooms, apparently. Yeah. And then um, later on, um, having sex with Lily in bed which th there is a few instances in the movie where it is unsure like what is real and what is fake at this point mm -hmm. and that's one of those things where like this could be real or fake I think that part was real even though uh Lily later denies that but yeah there the relationship between Nina and Lily is like you can never tell if Lily is sincere um, trying to be her friend or just mm -hmm. trying to take her place even though yeah. throughout this Nina is convinced that her place is trying to be taken by Lily yeah and after this happens it completely wears black she's you know taken over she's just become this more independent person for the worst and for the better mm -hmm. and become more obsessed with you know nailing this part and then you see that Lily has kind of replaced her and become her alternate mm -hmm. and she like completely kind of freaks out a bit but also like there's a sense where like Lily like I think generally I think Lily is generally just like a nice person is just trying mm -hmm. to help Nina out because you see at the end of the movie she really is just like Nina like you did really a great job I just think it's from Nina's point of view yeah so we're seeing her really like paranoid about someone taking her part and and kind of losing her her grip of reality you know after when she realizes that Lily is going to the alternate she goes to Tomas and she's like like literally starts crying and is like she's trying to replace me and Tomas is like what the fuck are you talking about yeah and she does the same thing to Beth as well when Beth's oh. in the hospital yeah saying that I know how you feel now because I'm trying to be replaced too yeah and so it's a whole thing and throughout this entire time when you know she's going to practice she's trying to perfect her her you know black swan she kind of starts to physically transform as well you kind of see it with these scratches on her back and when he's um, having sex with Lily, you kind of see these like patterns, it flashes on her skin of like, kind of looks like goose skin, even though mm -hmm. I know it's swan skin. <laughs> yeah. Me, the first thing I can find was a goose, it's like bumped and raised and she starts to get like, her nails are coming off and they're oh, like yeah. feathers. That was the part with the nails coming off yeah. in the beginning. No. I cannot watch that. That's the part where I tapped out the first time yeah. and I'm like, I'm not watching this anymore, but. I still close my eyes, but besides that, like, it, that's the only part where I thought it was unwatchable. Yeah, so that was really good. That's the beginning of the movie. She's, like, at the event where Tomas announces her as the principal dancer. She's, like, freaking out. She's, like, washing her hands, and she sees, like, her thumb, her, one of her fingers is bleeding, and she pulls back oh. the nail, and as she pulls back the nail, it's, like, the rest of her skin, too. And then it's not real. You realize it's not real. And a lot of, a lot of happens, too, when she kind of has these you know, breaks from reality where she thinks she's like turning into a swan, like her legs break at some mm -hmm. point. 
and she like passes out. But I think also one of the kind of more comedic factors is when she's like freaking out and you know Lily wants to roll she, like like the night before her big show she's like practicing that mm-hmm. night and the pianist like leaves and it's like I he, and he literally says I have a life <laughs> like I am not mm-hmm. staying here all night and this is when you know another break in reality she looks into this is when she looks into the mirror and no I'm wrong that there, was another point. That yeah. was another point. This there are a few she, different times, though. Like, the use of reflection in this is yeah, done really mirrors. well, where she's looking in the reflection, and she is moving, and the reflection mirror is doing something else. Yeah, so she's getting her costume mm-hmm. changed. Um, I think also there's a lot of, obviously, in dance studios, it's all mirrors, so you can see what you're doing, so I think that plays into effect, too. Anywhere she's dancing, you're kind of also looking at her reflection dancing, as well mm-hmm. as her. No, so the night before the big show she I guess has a vision of Lily and Tomas having sex but then Lily becomes Nina and Tomas becomes the kind of demon of the Swan Lake and then she goes to visit Beth and she stole all these things from Beth's room and gives it back to her which is also incredibly creepy and weird and then Beth starts stabbing her face with the nail file but then it becomes Nina's face and she goes back to her house and all of the paintings her mom has painted of her start to yell at her and then she like becomes a swan she has like these red eyes and she passes out and I was Mm -hmm. like before that she injures her mom's hand which I didn't think was real but then you see later her mom has like a a wrap around it Mm -hmm. so yeah so then we actually get to the part where she's dancing on stage and Mm -hmm. at first it isn't going well because the guy who she's dancing with drops her, which at this point, Nina is still blaming on Lily because she saw Lily dancing or uh, touching this guy earlier. Um, in, in addition to, I think it's mm-hmm. good to note that after she has this whole episode where she thinks she's like becoming a swan passed up, her mom says that she's called in sick and she mm-hmm. can't go to the stage. Yeah. So Nina is like fully unhinged at this point. Like right. she's been working so hard for this this moment and she's like and she's like you can't take that away from me and like mm-hmm. comes in and Lily's like about to go on as her and she's like no like you have it and she basically goes to Tomas like completely cool and she's like you haven't announced it yet mm-hmm. so therefore I'm still able to do this and Tomas you can see has like a little bit of respect for that mm-hmm. he's like because he's like it's not that she has to earn the part it's that she kind of has to take the part yeah I so but at first on uh, during that scene once he, the guy drops her Mm-hmm. things are not looking good and she goes back to her room where Nina shows up mm-hmm. and she stabs Nina who's doing this weird thing where it's like kind of looks like Nina kind of looks like her and then she goes back on the stage to complete the black swan aspect of it mm-hmm. which we'll later learn is Nina actually just stabbing herself yeah so she is going now on stage with this huge wound that she has um but she ends up dancing her best performance and she's the perfect black swan yeah and And she ends her performance the end of the performance is that she like leaps and it's the performance of black of swan lake as well she Mm -hmm. leaps and swan kills herself so essentially that is also like the full circle moment we have is she leaps lands on this mattress and her wound has become so bloody and the final word she says was it was perfect um and also tomas calls her my little princess which is exactly what beth said he would call her 
Mm-hmm. And we hear, like, she hears the audience in the background cheering. And it's this moment of, it's despair for the audience because we see what's, that she's going to die. But for her, it's like relief that yeah. she's done the best that she's can't, she can. And she knows that it's like the performance of a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. I think also, and we'll see this with the next movie we talk about, for Nina, like ballet is her life. Mm -hmm. She has nothing outside of it. And that's kind of what you see in this movie. Like her mom used to be a ballerina. Her mom has primed her for this Mm -hmm. moment. So I think that moment where she all of a sudden is like, I can't have this, is that she's like, I'd rather, you know, die and and do the the best job and the most perfect job than Mm -hmm. be nothing. and not have this part. In addition, um, when she does, you know, the black swan and she does, you know, the very famous black swan where they're doing the pirouettes over and over, she Mm -hmm. literally turns into a swan as to kind of, you know, finalize her transformation. I think in this movie, and I think it dare not Anoski in general, subtlety does not exist. Yeah. Nothing is subtle. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the two moments that made me generally laugh out loud was we have Nina's room, which is very pink. And as soon as we go into Tomas's office and Tomas's apartment, it is so much black and white furniture and there's not mm-hmm. a single color at all that I legitimately, like the, when we went into his office, I like laughed. And then when I saw it, <laughs> I laughed again. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I was like, actually, like, this is what we're doing. This is, <laughs> this is what we've just like production wise, like we've decided he is like, you know, hard and he sees everything in, you know, black and white. So his entire wardrobe and his entire space is like that. I mean, sometimes for Darren Aronofsky, it doesn't work. Like, I didn't see Mother, but that's what I had heard about that movie, where it's, like, so on the point. For this, it works, though. It works, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it works, because it's it's kind of talking about another art form, mm-hmm. which can also be sometimes very literal and very not. And I think mm-hmm. basically the whole movie is that she, essentially, that you see is battling herself, these two halves of herself, like the black swan and the white swan. And obviously, she lets her her she kind of lets her perfection win because the whole point is that the black swan is kind of trying to take over and her white and her white swan is the one that's like no like I'm gonna do this and Mm -hmm. her need to be perfect and to be you know a perfect swan queen is is what her downfall is because she slowly slowly just starts to lose grip of reality and what that means to her yeah very well said yeah, overall, highly recommend. Yeah. You should see this movie. I'm trying to think of some of my other, like, good scenes in this movie. Um, Let me see. Let me check my notes. Oh, Sebastian Stan. He makes, like, a small cameo that I mm-hmm. always forget about. Yeah, he's one of the guys who she's in the bar with. And whenever he comes on screen each time I watch, I'm like, oh, there's Sebastian Stan. There he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one of the other things that this was just something as I was watching it reminded me of, Shirley Jackson's A Haunting of Hill House very I think for me very similarly like reflects the relationship between the mother and the the daughter in this mm-hmm. film in the sense that she in the beginning of the film very much views herself as a child mm-hmm. uh, of her mother's and a child in herself like she can't ask her what she wants the idea that her room is like that and I think as she goes into this part she's kind of realizing that she's like an adult mm-hmm. she should have a say in what she wants but obviously she takes it too far um oh wait, my god wait what are we talking about the fucking the meme um, talking about reflections before, we have the iconic, iconic meme where she calls her mother in the bathroom, she's in a stall, and she's, you know, the scene that they used 
to the clip at the Oscars where she goes like, he picked, he picked me, mommy, which is honestly like so much about her emotional state, that entire line. Oh, um, yeah. And then she goes out of the bathroom <laughs> and someone wrote, Poor. Poor. Yeah. <laughs> she wipes it off and that's just used as a meme over and over again but it's pretty iconic it's pretty funny and yeah I because I, I was just thinking of like what are the things that I laugh at uh and there aren't many but that's there one of them because I was kind of thinking about whoever actually did that because she was in the bathroom stall for 20 to 30 seconds so whoever came in wrote whore really quietly and then left right after that I'm kind of like props to you Maybe because I'm a little bit impressed. And then like, it was for Nina, but like, it could have been for anyone having horror on the um, the mirror. And then the other part that I was like, oh, I did kind of laugh at that is uh, watching it back a second time. There's a woman named Susie who works at the office there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't notice, but they mentioned Susie like at least two or three times, even Mm -hmm. though we don't meet her because- when the mother is trying to be invited to the gala event, she's like, oh yeah, that's what Susie at the office told me that like there weren't enough tickets. And then when Lily shows up at Nina's door and she's like, how did you know this is where I live? And Lily's like, oh, like see, uh, I asked Susie from the office, <laughs> which is like so random, but. She, she is the real one in this movie. Yeah, it's like, she's at, Susie's out there pulling the strings. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall really well shot there's a yeah. lot of like really intense close-ups in this movie as well not only just in Nina and as she's dancing um I really liked one of the shots where Nina's late and um instead of fo- we focus a little bit on Lily dancing but mm-hmm. instead we focus on Tomas viewing it yeah and we see like his reaction to it which I thought was really great because you kind of realize like he likes it mm-hmm. and like obviously he's doing this to so doubt in Nina and competition within her so she rises up which is a fucked up thing to do yeah, it's a lot of mind games it's a lot of mind he's a mind game he's a crusty old man and he likes to play mind games yeah one of the things also is that when their first kiss we have this really intense close-up to them kissing where like you can see their tongues mm-hmm. like him like slip his tongue into her which is so uncomfortable yeah. but like without Tomas and his crusty old man Nina probably wouldn't be this movie wouldn't be without him. I have to say it, even though I don't like him and mm-hmm. he abuses his power. Speaking of um, people who abuse their power, we are moving on to Whiplash from 2014, directed Great. by Damien Chazelle. Great transition, um, by the way. With, thank you, uh, the master of mind games, uh, J.K. Simmons' character. Yes. So, uh, do you have any opening thoughts on Whiplash? Was this your first time watching or? So um, this was my second time watching. Okay. I saw this movie for the first time in theaters with my family. Um, the first time I saw it, I went to the bathroom at one point and he gets into a car crash. So like I literally went to the bathroom where he's like driving his car and I came mm-hmm. back and he's like playing the drums covered in blood. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, like context what? with this. Uh-huh. Um, so I did see that scene. I think for this movie, like this movie made me because I know I've seen it and I know what happens, I think mm-hmm. going into it, I was still just as nervous and like it was still cringe as much cringe inducing. Like seeing that oh, scene yeah. with the car crash, like I almost couldn't watch it. Yeah. Because I think, if anything, in a different way from Black Swan, you can really see Andrew, who's played by Miles, um, no, Andrew, who Miles Teller plays, mm-hmm. um, you can see his want. 
in a different way. And his, his desperation is a little bit different than Nina. His need to fit in, I think, is a little bit sadder than, than Nina's in Black Swan. So for me, I think I felt more for that. And mm-hmm. knowing that he gets like abused in this way and kind of um, is dismissed in a certain way is incredibly uncomfortable and cringe-inducing to see, especially how and like how much hope you see him in the beginning versus like the end of the movie, like full arc. Yeah, because especially in this one, they focus a lot on a few relationships here. It's mm-hmm. um, Andrew and his father, who you notice that him and his father, they're very different in the sense that um, Andrew is obsessed with his music and he does not come up from a family that's musically gifted in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, Terrence Fletcher, he is the one who's a uh, ruthless jazz instructor. Um, he brings up a few times. So it's Andrew and his father versus Andrew and Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Andrew is growing closer and closer to his obsession and relying on Fletcher, he's growing away from his family ties, um, mm-hmm. a potential girlfriend in Nicole um who was a movie theater employee that he met met and he's just isolating himself where it's just him and drumming and Fletcher and that's all that matters to him yeah I think very similar to Black Swan and to I think a lot of what the themes of obsession to perfection is that their entire at least especially for Black Swan is that their identity is tied to what they do Mm -hmm. so like for drumming for dancing um this also really reminds me <laughs> I don't, we've probably heard this but um there's a new show called the bear on fx that's about mm-hmm. a, a cook who you know this world-renowned cook goes back to chicago to run his family sandwich shop like i'm not gonna talk about any more than that but like mm-hmm. i read an interview with the main actor and he jeremy ellen white and he talks about how this character's entire identity is def- defined by the fact that he is this really great chef and oh. he has nothing else outside of that and this movie, I think, is very similar to that TV show. They're very both stressful, very different themes overall. But the idea that they are nothing without this and mm-hmm. their entire self-worth is tied to the fact that they have to do well in this specific craft is very you know, prevalent. You know, he talks about in this movie, you know, once he's been drumming for a bit with Fletcher, specifically with Fletcher's band, he goes back home and he goes to dinner. And he has this conversation with his uh, father and his, I guess his aunt or whatever, cousins. He talks about how he would rather be dead and drunk at 34 and people, you know, talking about him at a dinner table than, you know, 90 healthy and having friends. And like, Mm -hmm. that's a really sad outlook on life because he Mm -hmm. does have absolutely no friends. Like Nina kind of makes a friend in Lily he has no friends and he relishes that. Like he wants that. He's like, why do I need friends when I have, I have this path that, mm-hmm. that he has. And he's like, the path is all I need, which I'm like, it kind of isn't. You're kind of falling apart. Yeah. And actually I love that dinner table um, sequence because when he's talking to, was it one of his cousins who's also there with him? Who's oh, the yeah, football the player. Biggest and burn. they're going back and forth uh, just about, um drumming and like what are you kind of doing with your life mm-hmm. and they he starts fighting with his cousins and the cousins who's a big football player says you want to play with us about football and then and uh he responds with four words you will never hear from the nfl and it was the biggest like mic drop wait 
did you hear what the dad said afterwards no so they had this whole fight where like the so like in the family kind of dinner they kind of don't really care about Andrew and his drumming and I think you can really see that and they start talking about how you know the cousin's playing football and he goes it's D3 yeah which I found hilarious and so whatever you know he has the you know four words from over here from the NFL and then the dad goes four from Lincoln Center which oh. is where Andrew wants to play and I was like yeah. dude if your dad is saying that I think you're being a bit of an ass yeah yeah Ooh. um but the, yeah overall like this movie basically charts his entire journey from going from he's in a uh the Schaefer school it's a music music school in New York City it's fake um but he I guess he starts at a very kind of low-level band and he moves to Fletcher's jazz band which is incredibly Mm -hmm. high quality and intense group and it basically charts his entire journey there and Fletcher's very abusive tactics to get him to be the best he could be and yeah there's a lot in this movie and I think you know Damien Chazelle he also wrote it and this is based off a a short he did which if it's basically the, that first practice scene, because I've seen the short, it's essentially the exact same thing. Um, it's that first practice scene um, where he throws the chair at him and he slaps him in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, yeah, it just expands on that idea. Uh, the, really so well I guess let's go through maybe uh, just all the stressful sequences where they're practicing. Because the, there's yeah. the one where someone is out of tune. And That's the first one. That's the first one, yeah. The first one, or attitude. And Um, he's trying, yeah, so the reason the chair gets thrown is is they're trying to figure out who is, no. No. No, the different one, different one. It's a different one. So So, I guess like the best way to set it up is he, you know, gets, he gets asked to be in this class. He goes to the class. Um, Everyone's kind of joking around. Fletcher comes. They're all like, it's time to go. And um, they start playing and Fletcher is like someone is out of tune and he asks each group of instruments to start playing and essentially he picks on one group and he's like no like he's, he's, he's like he's like am I wrong no I don't think I'm wrong mm-hmm. and basically like gets on this one group and basically asks him who's out of tune and he kind of picks on this one chubbier kid and he's like belittling him and no one can look him in the eye that's the one thing I noticed in this entire you know single player can like look him in the eye and talk to him which is telling and essentially he gets this guy to leave and then tells another guy you were the one out of tune this kid wasn't out of tune but he didn't know the difference so that's even worse Mm -hmm. and that's like your first scene into like this guy is not as nice because before especially you know you think he's tough when he you know talks to Andrew before and tells him like this is something you need to be working on in the beginning of the movie but and then at the like at that middle of practice he starts to talk to Andrew like one-on-one he's like oh you're new kind of ask Andrew about his life um you know his parents um Andrew's like oh my father is a teacher my mother like you know ran away you know is no longer with us um she left and he's like you know what just have fun whatever and that part like really got to me because I was like it's kind of sad because you see Andrew like really smiley and this is going to be a really great opportunity for me to me to really do my my drumming and then it like fucking goes to shit so you can talk about the second really stressful um, okay. moment so, right so the second one is Andrew is now playing 
And this is the, probably the most famous scene. Like this is the one that they use for the um, J.K. Simmons Oscar clip. It is the not mm-hmm. my tempo scene where yeah. Andrew is either rushing or dragging. So each time he messes up, he says, not, not my tempo, not quite my tempo and makes him do it over and over and over again until now J.K. Uh, Fletcher is screaming at Andrew and making him say awful things about himself in front of the whole class, mm-hmm. the whole band. And that's really his first taste of like real abuse from Fletcher during that yeah. scene. Because um, not only does he start, so, you know, he's like, oh, it's time for the new guy to play the drums. And then mm-hmm. he plays, he throws the chair. And Andrew's like, what the fuck? And then, you know, he starts yelling at him and then he slaps him where he goes, because he keeps asking Andrew, were you rushing or were you dragging? Mm-hmm. And Andrew's like, I don't know. So he's like, okay, let me show you. So he's like, do a count. And then well, he could be like one, two, three. And then right before four, he would slap him. And he's like, is that rushing or dragging? Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then he also like, after that, Andrew starts to cry because he was just slapped and embarrassed by the whole mm-hmm. class. And he starts to kind of use what Andrew told him about his parents against him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say one of the lines I wrote down there is when he says, Oh, like, are you one of those single tier people? Yeah. It's just, it's just sad. Um, And I was like, and I literally wrote, He's crying because you're being a dick. Yeah. But this kind of pushes Andrew instead of like pushing, coming back from that. He's like, I'm going to work even harder so this doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And he basically see like this whole montage scene of like, his hands getting callous and he's painful but he's he's still going and this is all juxtaposed with his kind of first date scene with Cole which is quite cute mm-hmm. which ends up going um Andrew says to her that we can't be together because I'm focusing on my drumming and yeah. um, if we stay together I'll end up resenting you because you'll tell me not to drum mm-hmm. and then like I'm gonna hate you for that so we better just break things off now which yeah. is just like I mean, he's being, he's speaking what he, like his truth, but it's nothing you should ever say to any human being, which like Nicole absolutely calls him out on. Yeah, she's basically like, you have a path in your life and I don't, so you think yeah. I'm going to distract you. And, she, and she's like, you know, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she basically reads him and is like, this is dumb. And honestly, like they shouldn't have been together because Andrew's not in like a great mindset at this moment. Yeah, which kind of, sucks and then we get like similar to black swan we get another seat of competition where mm-hmm. he invites the other drummer from the band that uh, andrew was originally in to come and uh drum so now we have three drummers and andrew was made before this andrew was made the core drummer essentially because he could memorize sheet music and the other guy couldn't he had like a folder for some competition he lost the folder and the other drummer was like i can't do it so andrew's like I can do it because he's been practicing. And so he thinks he's core. And then Fletcher comes in and he's like, you're temporary core. Here's a new guy. Uh, that's the, I would say it's probably the third practice that is mm-hmm. very um, stressful. I feel like we need a better word for stressful because stressful just goes, is too yeah. weak of a word to describe what these scenes are. They are just like torturous for you to watch, I feel like. Yeah, but also like, when the third drummer is introduced, this is also like oddly just juxtaposed with one of 
Fletcher's, oh, so yeah, so, uh, sorry. So the third drummer is introduced as like, they have this second practice in the later day. And he had given the third drummer the uh, sheet music beforehand. And Andrew only has until like five o'clock that day to learn it. So it's, you know, it's uneven competition. And there's this whole thing where Andrew comes up to Fletcher and is like, what it like I can do this like why are you doing this and, mm-hmm. and Fletcher's crying as they say like get out and then you realize he makes this whole speech like the next that later class and he's like oh um one of like I want you just to listen to this and it's like a trumpet or it's some horn I don't know music um and he's like just like this was one of my students he passed away in a car crash I think the other day and I just wanted you to know that he was a beautiful player and this is juxtaposed with literally probably one of the worst practices they've ever had Mm -hmm. right so that's like an important part that we know that information because later andrew's father brings him to a lawyer who is the one who's representing um sean casey who Mm -hmm. uh actually did not die in a car accident like fletcher had told everyone but actually hung himself out of um the distress that Fletcher had caused to him and his abuse to him. So they are needing Andrew to testify saying like, yes, I've also gone through this abuse, mm-hmm. which at first he's hesitant to do, um, but then ultimately agrees with, because it's going to be anonymous, which then gets Fletcher fired, for, yeah. uh, which is great because he obviously shouldn't be working Not, with yeah. that job. And he Fletcher and Well, Andrew starts then, like, getting better. He calls Nicole again, even though Nicole has a boyfriend now. And he's reconnecting with his dad. So he seems to be mending until um, Andrew is walking by and sees a sign that Fletcher is performing within a specific Mm -hmm. jazz club there. So he goes in and um, Andrew and Fletcher rekindle a little bit and... Um, Fletcher's saying, oh, like, I have no idea. Probably one of um, Sean Casey's former, um, one of the students from that year as well um, said these things and got me fired. But, you know, I'm doing this performance um, and I would like want you to be a part of it uh, if you'd like to, which Andrew agrees to. And this is like, this performance is just the worst secondhand embarrassment yeah that like you'll ever see because right before they begin to play Fletcher comes up to Andrew and is kind of like fuck you I know you're the one who ratted me out and the punishment is in front of this like very um renowned it like it's a very renowned audience and festival yeah. that they're playing at yeah and Fletcher says mm-hmm. that like these people will remember if you suck and they'll be really good to you if you're great so it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of pressure for the, the people in the band to play well. And this is his own band. This isn't a school-affiliated mm-hmm. band. And Andrew is given, purposely was told the wrong song. So everyone else is playing a different song. Andrew is up there making, uh, having a fool made out of him in front of everyone. And it's like just awful to watch. And yeah. you see him run out to his father and the father is there to comfort him and Andrew has this moment where he's like no I'm going back on stage and really takes control of Fletcher's band Mm -hmm. playing Whiplash the song that 
Uh, they've mostly been practicing the whole time. And even after the song is over, Andrew is like still playing and doing this really intense, I don't even, I don't know the technical terms for it, but he's like going really fast. He's hard, just yeah. hitting his drums really hard. And it's like really impressive. And at this point, Fletcher sees the potential that he saw in Sean Casey and he is looking for his own person to bring to the top. And <laughs> he's starting to realize like, this could be Andrew. So it's just this very intimate moment, even though it's in front of everyone where Fletcher is really like proud of him, but like just trying to put him in the right direction. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot of emotion going on in one scene. Yeah. yeah, the last scene is essentially Andrew playing the drums. Like there's barely any dialogue in it. So it's like, he kind of takes control of mm -hmm. the situation. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I think obviously like Fletcher is a very intense character, but going back to when you're saying for when they're, they're meeting, they have this, they're meeting once he's been fired and Andrew's no longer in the school. Um, they kind of have this conversation where he's kind of talking about like, he, you know, wasn't trying to be abusive. He was trying to push people, what was beyond expected of them. And they keep talking about Charlie Parker, where he was a musician who apparently um, someone else had thrown like a, a chair at him or something like that. And instead of, you know, leaving, he comes back and he, you know, plays this really great concert. And it's like a music thing that I don't really like mm -hmm. reference kind of goes over my head, but you get the importance of this. And he kind of, kind of is like, and Andrew's kind of like, is there a line? Like, do you do you also discourage this type of talent if you're behaving this way? And Fletcher's like, no, I'm not. But the thing is that for me specifically, I don't think Fletcher gives a shit about, you know, making the next Charlie Parker. And I think some of those, the scenes that specifically does it is the fact that he takes pride in mm -hmm. the students. And when there's a scene where all, when all three of the drummers are being, you know, playing and they can't get the speed right. So he goes to the rest of the band. He goes, sorry, I hate to do this, to put you guys through this. Like, sorry that these guys are putting you through this, but you have to step outside and I have to work with these three. And you can hear them like yelling. And it's just this scene where it's con contrasting all the musicians waiting outside to play. And mm -hmm. they're just like bleeding and they keep going. And they're switching out and out. And eventually like Andrew's the one that, that gets it. Mm -hmm. But they're going faster and faster. And it's just like I'm like you don't care about making the next Charlie Parker I think one of the things too is when they're at the one of the the shows not the one where he goes gets into a car crash the, uh, I think one of the other ones where he talks about how this is my band like this is my band this is my reputation that you're going to either destroy or, or do well like I choose who I want to play this is not your part you didn't earn it I chose you to do this and he puts it all within his point of view which just makes me think that this entire, like, I want to do this and I want to make the next best drummer is just bullshit. It's all about him. It's not about anyone else because he enjoys doing this and he enjoys, like, inflicting pain. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I feel like with all of these obsession movies, really it comes down to all of our villain characters. They're all, like, thinking too highly of themselves and they think they're always the most important person in the room and that there's 
always someone below them that they're willing to take advantage of for um, their own um, their own ambition, really. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I do think overall, like, this is honestly a really great movie. Um, it really takes you into this this world of, you know, these kids who want to be professional jazz drummers or not jazz drummers, but musicians and jazz Mm -hmm. musicians Uh, one of the things I like as well as when Andrew and Fletcher are talking in that bar uh Fletcher goes jazz is dying which just made me laugh because like that's essentially the precipice for La La Land (laughs) (laughs) oh and he also has a um to back up his point he brings up like all the jazz song or the jazz music that they play in Starbucks and he's like is this what it's come to really which I thought is funny because sometimes I walk into a Starbucks I'm like oh I I really like the music they're playing here yeah um, I think that's why I kind of like this is because you're getting this a- appreciation for music that like I don't necessarily understand or want to understand mm-hmm. like, I, like it's, it doesn't mean anything to me but obviously it means a lot to these people I think the opening scene is one of the strongest of, of these movies you start out at black you're hearing the strumming and then we get into cut into like a hallway with a room Andrew's playing and you kind of slowly zoom in until he's playing which Mm -hmm. I thought was really just a great kind of taking you into this character and his his need obviously you know it isn't the time of night there's no one else there Mm -hmm. so obviously he's been practicing for some time Uh, this is also where we meet Fletcher for the first time when he comes in and kind of is like very straightforward he is kind of um making fun of him but not into the degree that we see but there's a hint of the fact that he kind of likes to um, inflict embarrassment and pain on the people that he teaches. Yeah. And then another um, shot that I really, I love the opening hallway shot. And (laughs) they'll do these shots from time to time where they'll go whipping, kind of like whiplash back and forth between Andrew, then Fletcher, then Andrew, then Fletcher. And those shots are uh, really great as well. Um, And just the way uh, all the colors in this, like it's so many golden shots, especially when Andrew is being introduced to the main band and everything is just so gold and it's everything he's wanted. And just <laughs> the way the colors are reflecting off of all the br- brass instruments, like there's something so comfort f- comforting about the way everything is shot, even though what you're seeing is like abuse, like yeah. just everything looks so beautiful on the outside. And then when you actually get into it, it's like, what's going on is just like awful to Andrew and probably like all the students who have come before him. Mm-hmm. There is a couple times where he does handheld mm-hmm. um, camera work, which is when all three drummers are doing that really like really fast drumming. Yeah. Um, he does handheld, he kind of goes in between Fletcher and him um, and the other guy drumming and uh, Andrew, mostly Andrew drumming. And it's kind of like this really intense like you don't know what's going to happen sort of thing. I think one of the, the shots I also really liked was that kind of end shot where Andrew is, he keeps playing on the drums. No one else is playing. Mm-hmm. And he's like really freaking out on drums, mm-hmm. like giving it his all. And there's this wide shot of his father watching and not his wide shot, but it's a wide shot of the stage. And you, mm-hmm. all you can see is Andrew like freaking out on the drums, like really giving it his all. But I don't know if I think this is a good uh, ending for Andrew specifically. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think Fletcher is going to change. And I think that's just going to end up hurting him in the end. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that one. Yeah. Um, um, and obviously, like, 
once again, his obsession with being this Charlie Parker-esque drummer, mm-hmm. you know, isolates him from, well, he had no friends. So from his girlfriend, from his parents, from anyone he could possibly be friends with. Like one of the things I found astonishing was that no one in band like carpooled together. Yeah. Like, so they have this one, this one concert where there it has to be there at a certain time and Andrew's like on a bus by himself like no one else is there and my one thought was like I think because they all see each other as competition and like no one trusts each other that like they can't even be like hey like wouldn't it be better if we all showed up at the same time and all took the same route so like if anything Mm -hmm. happens like we're all there yeah but no yeah you'd think like they'd have a bus for everyone like oh we all meet at the bus at the same time Mm -hmm. and we all go over together but you know, I don't know what kind of co- um what kind of college band they're running here. So yeah, I guess the, the one thing that I they did like that not that I needed them to touch upon, but something that I was curious was like the financial strain. So like obviously he's in school. Mm-hmm. He his father is a teacher, so doesn't can't imagine he makes that much money. But he like gets kicked out of school because he so but that when he gets in that car crash and he decides to keep playing at that stage Fletcher's mm-hmm. like get off and then he attacks Fletcher so yeah. he gets five um he gets kicked out mm-hmm. but then he decides to like go back to Columbia as like his next options that next year mm-hmm. and I'm just like and he like the the um car that he crashed was like a rental so I'm just kind of like what is the financial strength for this drums aren't cheap yeah that's like, a good point like yeah. it's like you have to be a very specific like financially stable or willing to do this to take out loans to like be this this sort of person mm-hmm. um that it's just that's just what you know got me thinking yeah um, no it's a good point I don't have an answer for it I don't I'm I don't know if they've thought about that as well maybe yeah I don't know but overall very good mm-hmm. um and I guess like we sh- we could mention the kind of differences and similarities between Black Swan and Whiplash because they are incredibly similar. The one thing I noticed is that the main characters are very similar. They both come from like families that are single parents. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the idea that this is their life, that they don't have friends, they don't have lovers, anything like that. Um, I think for me, the main differences is how they're like, quote-unquote teacher director treats them Mm -hmm. in Black Swan it's a much more like sexual sexualized thing and in here it's just straight up like physical abuse and also both both are are in a way mental abuse but Mm -hmm. much more physical and I think also even though ballet is quite physical in that movie they do a lot of showing like what they do to their bodies and um their feet (laughs) specifically um that I don't think people consider Mm-hmm. And really good sound design in both of those movies as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Black Swan, the way you hear like the sound of her toes cracking, like that is like very hard to listen to. And then the same thing where um, his hands hurt so badly and he's like putting them in the ice water, the sound that's making. So a lot of small details to show just like what they're going through to achieve their obsession of the drumming and the dancing and yeah so thanks for listening mm-hmm. we hope you in like uh like this episode please let us know you know future episode ideas or if you liked this our ranked our ranked video our ranked videos our ranked mm-hmm. podcast episodes but yeah thanks for listening bye bye